us turn back to the portion we have read. We have read in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 49. We want to center our attention on verses we find from verse 4 through to verse 7. We can take it from verse 3. There was my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Now, by way of introduction, we can consider these words at the end of verse 3. Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. (coughs) Who is this servant who is the subject of these verses that we have just read? Thou art my servant, O Israel. Israel was the initial servant of the Lord. She was a chosen nation, chosen of God, chosen of God to be his servant. To be his servant, the oracles of God the oracles of God's truth that were to be invested in the nation of Israel, the word that we have from Genesis through to most of the Old Testament, all of that (coughs) teaching, it was not just for them to keep to themselves, it was for them to bring to the nations round about them. They were to be the servant of God, they were to be the witnesses of God to bring the truth to the other nations. If you turn back just a few chapters, chapter 42 and verse 19, you find these words, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant. And that, these words tell us that Israel failed 
in this remit that was given to her to be the servant of the Lord. She did not carry out what was given to her to do. She didn't bring the truth to the other nations. She was a blind servant. She was a deaf servant. It's not therefore the nation of Israel that is the subject of the verses that we have taken as our text. You find Israel spoken of in the Old Testament, indeed in the book of Psalms, as the vine. This vine that had been delivered from Egypt But when you come to the New Testament, especially to Gospel of John in chapter 15, you find Jesus speaking, I am the true vine. In other words, I am the true Israel. In other words, I am the true servant of the Lord. What Israel, the nation was supposed to do and failed in, well, I have come to fulfill to be the servant of the Lord. And that is what the way that we are to look at our text today. The one of whom we have been singing as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came as the servant in the fullness of time. The servant to stand in the Roman place of a people chosen of God, transgressors, by, to stand in the Roman place and to bring forth the righteousness that God requires of them. That is the servant Jesus Christ came to bring forth that perfect obedience of which we are by fallen nature bereft. You find in the prophecy of Isaiah four songs that are usually spoken of Isianic songs. Isianic songs centered upon the servant of the Lord. The first of these is in chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Some say verses 1 to 9, but doesn't matter. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my spirit rejoices. The Father, God the Father, speaking of the Son, my servant, whom I uphold, whom I will uphold. You find another song in this portion that we have taken today. Psalm 49, uh, Isaiah 49, and some say verse 1 to 9, but some say 1 to 6. It doesn't matter, but in this portion. And another portion in chapter 50 and verses 4 through to 9 again. And then you get the fourth one, beginning at the end of chapter 52, the last three verses of 52, 
and going on into the whole of 53 that we are all fairly familiar with, with beautiful words like, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, healing comes to our souls, centered very much on the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. Now, the servant of the Lord, and the first thing we're going to notice today, <clears throat> the temptation to which he was subject. And you see that temptation in verse 4. Then I said, these are the words of the Lord, the servant. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. But notice that a word, a significant word that follows that, yet, yet. The temptation was there, yet he did not succumb to it. But the temptation itself, first and foremost, I have labored in vain. Imagine these words coming from the Lord of glory. You have a fulfillment here of what you have in the gospel according to John. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to be the servant, first and foremost, to Israel itself. But his own received him not. And the temptation was there as he labored and his teaching was rejected. The temptation was there to say, I have labored in vain. And all that I'm doing is for nothing. Amazing words to come from the Lord of glory in our natures. But we are to remember that he is very man of very man and subject to temptation. He was tempted in all parts, like as we are, yet without sin. That he might be enabled to sympathize with us in all the difficulties and temptations to which we as his people, are sub subject also. This is a sort of thing that can happen with a minister of the gospel, for example, preaching the gospel to his congregation week in, week out, maybe for months, maybe for years, and not seeing fruit for his labors. Happened with the likes of Jeremiah. And the temptation to say, I have labored in vain. 
my work is for naught. This is the sort of thing that can happen with a father or a mother preaching, teaching, praying for a child, a youngster. And instead of seeing that youngster turning to the gospel, he goes further and further into his wayward ways. And the temptation there to say, I have labored in vain. My work is for naught. Well, there is one to whom we can come in our great difficulty and one who will not spurn our afflicted prayer at such a time, but who says, come unto me and I will give you rest. I will give you succor. Let's look secondly, how did, how did the servant, how did he resist this temptation? The temptation itself is not a sin. Somebody has said, let the birds can fly, the birds can fly over my head, but I'm not going to allow them to make a nest in my head. That's how we must do be with the temptation. We must resist it. How did the Lord, how did the servant resist this temptation? Three ways that I want to bring before you today. First, with arguments centered upon the righteousness of God. The God whom he speaks of in our nature is my God. He is very God himself, but in our nature he says, my God. And you see that um, when you turn to verse 4, this argument centered upon the righteousness of God. Then I uh, yes, the, 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 then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet, yet, surely, this is the argument, surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God, my God. That word judgment, if you look at the margin, I think, you'll find it, the other, other word, the word for it is my, my, my reward. My reward is with my God. In other words, it is up to my God to determine what the results will be that will flow from my labor, whether they will be what we deem success or not, as we, what we deem success. It's all in his hands. And by implication, he is the righteous one, and he will always do right. He will allot, allocate to me what he sees to be right, because he is a righteous God. My judgment is with my God. And that really is the first argument. My reward is with my God. 
And the second argument is an argument centered on the faithfulness of God. You see that in verse 7, towards the end of the verse, because of the Lord that is faithful. The Lord that is faithful. When you think of faithfulness, you're thinking of promises. Faithful to promises. Promises that were made by God to him who is the servant. These promises were made way back in the depths of eternity. Way back in the counsel of God. There wasn't a time when that counsel was. It's from it's from everlasting. But we speak and we 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 cannot understand this. We just we speak in as in terms of what in terms of time. <clears throat> and in that covenant, in that counsel of God, that everlasting counsel, there was a plan. For the salvation of sinners, elect sinners. God the Father is the author of the plan. God the Son was the one who was to take, he, there were conditions laid upon God the Son. He was to take our nature, and in that nature, he was to fulfill righteousness in the place of these elect transgressors so that the mercy of God would then flow towards him. These are the conditions were laid upon him, and the conditions being fulfilled, promises were given by the Father. That he himself would be glorified in our nature, and that his, his elect sinners would be his as his portion. So that there were conditions, there was a condition, and there were promises. And you see that promise when you look at the first of the Isianic songs, to which I've referred already, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, this is the Father speaking, behold my servant whom I uphold. And I'm told that that Word that upholding can be looked at as a past tense, the present tense, or a future tense. Whom I shall uphold. The promise by the Father of upholding his Son in his service. Not to take away anything of the rigors of that service, but to enable him to enter into that service with all its rigor with all its with all, with all its all its difficulties to enable him to enter into it to the full my the promise then by the father that he would uphold him uphold him even in the cross not by taking the cross away but by enabling him to enter into the rigors of that cross to the full in the roman place of his people the promise by the Father that he would uphold him. And he would uphold him all the way towards the cross. 
appalled him when he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he would be upheld. He would be upheld, for example, by resorting uh, in, into a mountain, as we read in one occasion, and uh, engaging in prayer with the Father. And that was a means of his being strengthened and upheld. But upheld, the promise of being upheld. Now, that was the promise from the Father. And the Son, the servant, could say, that promise, he has been faithful in this promise up to now. From the womb, he says. He's been, he's been the servant from the womb. And he cannot point a finger, even if he wanted to, he cannot point a finger to any failure on the part of the Father to honor his promise. He's been faithful in his promise. And you see, by going on from that, by implication, he is the changeless one. And the one who has promised, and the one who has continued to be faithful in his promise, he will continue to be faithful right through. Why should I therefore yield to this temptation? The promise, this, the, 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 the argument centered on the faithfulness of God the Father. And there is a third promise. A third, a third, a third, a third argument for the for resisting of this temptation. And it's an argument centered, I can't find good words for this, but an argument centered on the perspective of God the Father. An argument centered on the one who sees the end from the beginning. And you see that argument if you look at verse 7, I think. Verse, verse 6, sorry. And he, that is the Father, and he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. Now, that's a language that we are not familiar with in our own day. But what are they saying? You remit as the servant is not to be confined to the restoration of Israel. It is a wider remit than that. It's a light thing. It's a small thing to consider it as just Israel. Your, ser your service is much wider than, much wider than that. And you see how wide it is if you look at the rest of that verse. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Or not just to think of your service as being confined to the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Jacob, it's a wider remit that I have given you. 
And notice, by the way, how the humanity of the Savior is brought out here. This is something apparently that the servant came to an understanding of in a gradual process. Well, you find him speaking, for example, to the Syrophoenician woman, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when you come to the gospel, when you come to the gospel of Matthew, the end of the chapter, the end of the, the end of the book, go into all the world. There's been a process of understanding of what his remit was. He grew in knowledge, didn't he? He grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. The Savior uniting with us in our human understandings. One who understands us in our difficulties. Process of coming to an understanding of the width of the remit, apparently. The remit was not just to be Israel. It was to be Gentiledom. It was to the ends of the earth. The remit was to include Europe. The remit was to include Scotland. The remit was to include Stornoway. How amazing. And you see, Israel... Well, Israel continued in its opposition. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And you find Israel at the end saying, the curse is cursed be upon us and upon our children. And isn't that what followed? Right through the history of Israel, you find anti-Semitism following. You find it even in the Second World War, the concentration camps. And we're still waiting for the time when Israel shall be returned. They have gone away from the Lord. We're still waiting for the day, and it's a promised day, when Israel shall be returned. But in the meantime, the gospel is going beyond the confines of Israel. The gospel is going towards the whole of the world. And there's the promise that Israel will yet be returned. And the whole gospel will then reach to the ends of the earth. You see, the perspective of God, it is a light thing just to consider it as Israel. Yes, there was Israel, but that was a small part of the remit. That is another argument for the resisting of the temptation. And you see the application that's there for yourselves and myself. How often we can have a tunnel, a myopic view, as it were, of the remit that is given to us, of a myopic view of the cause of Christ in our own day. We see so little 
in comparison with what has been there in the past. And we're inclined sometimes to say, The words that we have in verse 4, I have labored in vain. My strength is for naught. Look, losing sight of the greater vision, greater view, the gospel is going forth in power in Africa and uh, in other parts of the earth at this time. But it's the mustard seed and that is developing and growing. And we need to have that wider vision of the cause of Christ. We need to see it also sometimes in terms of remit that belongs to a congregation in the place where it is placed. And that it must have a wide-eyed view, wide-angle view of that remit. Not just its own congregation, its own a limited uh, focus upon certain, uh, a, a, a limited number of, of people confined to those who come Sunday after Sunday and only these wider going into all the earth. Wider missionary uh, remit given to the church. Not to have the folded hands, not to lose sight not to become subject to the temptation. Discouragement is a sin. And we must remember that and seek to grace, to enter into the duty that is given to the church. She's instrument in the ones to go into all the earth. Notice as you look at the chapter, look at verse 13, for example. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. The Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Look at verse 18. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all those gather themselves together and come to thee, the church growing. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on thee as a bride doeth. And so on. There is no room for I have labored in vain, and my strength is for naught. Yes, that temptation can come, but the word yet must be borne in mind. There are arguments centered upon the righteousness of God, the one who knows the reward, who knows the, the results that must be allocated. The success that must be allocated, we use that word success. Argument centered upon the faithfulness of the one who has promised that he will never leave, never depart from his own. And argument centered upon 
the perspective of the one who knows the end from the beginning and who has purposed a glorious commit towards his church. Just pray. Thy kingdom hath none end at all. It shall to ages all remain. We praise thee that it is a kingdom of grace and a kingdom of mercy. We pray that we would have our eyes unto thee in dependence upon thy grace. And in a, a desire to be more subject to thy will in all that is set before us in thy providence and truth. Above all, that thou would make Christ precious to us, that thou would make us more dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the sent Spirit, that thou would amaze us with the wonder that God himself, the third person, is present with his people that he has promised not to leave her, not to forsake her. And that we would be enabled in every circumstance, whether adverse outwardly or prosperous outwardly, to come to thee as our Father which art in heaven, believing that thou art making all things work together for the ultimate good of thy people and cause. We ask these things with a pardon of our shortcomings and sins. In Jesus' name, amen.